Okay, let's go ahead and uh, find our seats and we'll get started. And we're going to be in Exodus chapters 4 and 5 tonight. And as you recall, chapter 3, this is where Moses, now an 80-year-old man, herding sheep in his father-in-law's uh, family, and he encounters the voice of God coming to him from a burning bush, a bush consumed with fire and yet not being consumed. And God identifies himself as I am, the great I am, and he gives Moses a mission to lead God's people away from the Egyptian captivity and back to the promised land. And God explains the glorious success that Moses is going to have, uh, including the escape from the Egyptian army and, and the weighty treasure that they're going to get from the Egyptians when they leave and all that. And then we entered into chapter 4 last week. And um, in this chapter, Moses starts to express to the Lord reservations about doing what God has asked him to do concerning the, the, the children of Israel. Um, and, and the first question he has for God is, what if God's people and the Egyptians, for that matter, don't believe him when he says that he has been sent from God? And so God gives to Moses three distinct signs that he can use as a means by which he could prove out that it is God's word that he is acting upon. And by the way, a lot of the miracles we see in the Bible, in the New Testament, for example, the miracles that Jesus did, in most contexts when Jesus does a miracle, it's to, it's to substantiate and validate the words that he's speaking. It's not just only to wow people or to heal somebody or whatever. There's usually a, a tie back to something that he has said either about himself or about God's plan. And then there's a miracle that he does that, that kind of validates or substantiates what he has just said. And so Moses is given three signs. He's given the power to turn his staff into a snake and then to turn it back into a rod again. He's given the power to change his hand from being a whole and, he, and, and a healthy hand into a leprous hand and then back again. And then thirdly, he's given the power to turn water into blood. And so you would think that Moses feels well equipped. He's on his way to do what the Lord asked him. But yet Moses tries on yet another objection or reservation when he tells the Lord that he really is not the right choice because he's slow of speech. He's not really good on his feet when it comes to talking. And there's reason to believe that that was kind of a lame excuse because later on in the book of Acts we get a little commentary about Moses's life in Acts chapter 7 verse 22 where we read that Moses was learned in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deed and we can imagine spending the first 40 years of his life in the court of Pharaoh that he's been exposed to and been educated by some pretty smart people but nevertheless, the Lord kind of sideswipes that objection and simply says, okay, uh, you're my spokesman and Aaron can be your spokesman. And Aaron, by the way, is on his way. So that took us through the first 17 verses of chapter 4. So now we come into um, Moses heading off to Egypt. And we pick it up in verse 18 of chapter 4. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, 
and said to him, Please, let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now we see there in verse 18 that, you know, Moses doesn't take the opportunity to come to his father-in-law and just leave him in a lurch. I've heard from God. See you later, dad. Uh, No, he, he is a good example of how we should uh, obey the Lord, but at the same time not take advantage of those who have been kind to us or who have, um, who have allowed us to uh, work in their employ. So he asks his father-in-law's permission um, that please let me go, that I could return to my people, uh, the children of Israel, and to see whether they're alive. And of course, Jethro reasonably says, yes, go in peace. And I I might add that here's Moses now. He's had this burning bush experience. He has had an encounter with God, an encounter that makes it unmistakable to Moses that it was indeed God who was speaking to him. And he hears from God, and he's moved by what God says. And then most importantly, he goes. He goes where the Lord directs him to go. Uh, So often... We can, we can have one of those burning bush mo- moments. We often call them a mountaintop experience, kind of alluding to the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter, James, and John see Jesus transfigured with Moses and Elijah. Obviously, a major um, encounter with the living God. And it's sad when people have an encounter that's that kind of significant in their life. They hear from God They're moved by it, and then they don't go. I think often when people go, like we got ladies who are going to be going to a retreat this weekend, and very often you go to a retreat, all of the uh, distractions of your life are removed from the viewfinder. Uh, You're able to focus on the Lord. You're able to have beautiful fellowship with sisters or brothers in Christ. Uh, You learn things. The Lord speaks to you during the time of those sessions or maybe in times of prayer uh, between sessions. And you really feel like, wow, I, I had an encounter with the Lord. I had an encounter. God spoke to me about something that was important in my life. And then you come home and you go right back to your life and nothing has changed. And, and it's kind of a waste of that mountaintop experience. Uh, we need to kind of take a lesson from Moses' playbook. He, he had the burning bush experience. He heard from the Lord. It was an impactful message. It's an important message. And he goes. Now, he goes without knowing the magnitude of the commitment that he has just made. Uh, Moses, at this point, does not know that he is literally going to be chased by the Egyptian army and the Lord is going to deliver him through the Red Sea. He doesn't know that he will be leading millions of people through the wilderness and God will literally provide water from a rock. God will literally provide manna from heaven. God will allow them to win battles just through the power of prayer. He will have a vision of God on Mount Sinai. He will hear the voice from heaven and receive the law from the Lord. All of these things are in Moses' future. He doesn't know any of that yet. 
He doesn't get to weigh whether he wants to go or not based upon how amazing will the experience be. He simply goes because he was told to go. And all of this wonder and excitement and amazing stuff is yet in his future. And whereas we can't always guarantee that by obeying God, we're going to see the kinds of things that, uh, that Moses will be seeing and the kinds of things Moses will be doing, we can take as a general principle that when you trust God, your mind will probably be blown by the things that God is willing to do through you. When you, you know, Moses had a lot of reservation at the front end of this, didn't he? And, and, and don't ever think that Moses heard from God and immediately he was 100% committed and, and sold out for the Lord. I'm sure it was a process for him. A process of having enough faith to take one more step and then allowing God to use the measure of faith that Moses had in that moment to do something that Moses sees as validation of the faith that he had and it allows God over time to incrementally build his faith so that when the real challenges that are coming in his future come, he is, he is prepared, he is strengthened. And so uh, we see that process beginning right now. Now, God gives to Moses some, some reassurance there in verse 19 when he says, go return to Egypt, the people who sought your life for the crime that he committed 40 years ago of murdering that Egyptian, um, that, that these men now are, are dead and they will not be there to bother you. And he tells Moses, you know, to make your way, go there. Um, when you go to Egypt, make sure that you do all the wonders before Pharaoh that I've commanded you to do. Now, we're getting that in summary fashion. We don't know if at this point in time, Moses has actually been told the, 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 the succession of plagues that will be brought through Moses because of Pharaoh's repeated refusal to let the people go. But, but God is telling him, you know, you go ahead uh, you're going to be safe. In other words, people will not, the people who are looking to kill you before are not in the picture any longer. But then he says something else curious there in verse 21 that causes some people a little bit of consternation because we see there he's, he's sending Moses explicitly to go before Pharaoh to command that Moses or that Pharaoh let the people go. And then he says, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. It seems like God is working at cross purpose with himself. Go and do this, command this, and by the way, I'm going to put Pharaoh in a position where he won't do it. That seems like uh, the classic case of a fool's errand. Here, go do this, but by the way, there's no way you can do it. And so the question becomes, who is really going to harden Pharaoh's heart? Is it going to be Pharaoh who hardens his heart? Is it going to be God who hardens his heart? Because when we go through the chapters that are coming up, chapter, chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, where Moses is encountering Pharaoh and he's making these, these demands and, and Pharaoh is refusing and then another plague is brought upon Egypt, sometimes it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. For example, in, in chapter 4, we read that. Sometimes it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, which we'll see in chapter 8. And sometimes it simply says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And so the question is, who's doing the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? And the answer 
maybe the best answer is both Pharaoh and God. So here's the thing with God, because you see this in a, in a couple of places in Scripture where it's, we read that God hardened a, someone's heart or gave them over to something. When we read that God hardened somebody's heart, like, for example, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it's not as if Pharaoh wanted to obey God and God said, nope, I'm going to harden your heart so that you can't. Say, oh, but God, I really want to. Nope, sorry, you can't. No, it's never that. When we read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, what God is doing is he is allowing Pharaoh to do what Pharaoh wants to do. Uh, if you would turn quickly over to Romans chapter 1. We were in this very passage last night for a similar kind of reason. But in Romans chapter 1, this gives you a perfect example of how God reacts to somebody who is a determined sinner. We read there in verse 21, because although they, that is humanity that lives apart from God, although they knew God, in other words, they knew there was a God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. You see, it's their thoughts that are the futile ones. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Now get this in verse 24. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, etc. God gave them up. You see, what God is doing is he, is he is viewing the heart of a human being who, although they know God, refuses to recognize him as God. They desire to go after the things of the flesh. They desire to revel and worship their own carnality. They worship the creature rather than the creator. And therefore, God, believe it or not, when God, it says that God hardens a heart or, or gives someone over, it's actually an act of omission on God's part. The way uh, St. Augustine described it is uh, God does not harden men's hearts by putting evil into them, but by not giving them mercy. You see how that works? God, God, we, we are all headstrong carnal beings. That is the default position in which we are born. We are born into the world with a sin nature. We are born in sin. And so all of us have the desire to worship self. That's the original lie of the garden that got stamped into the DNA of humanity when Adam and Eve fell. But God shows us mercy. God can build in us faith it's a merciful act of God to give us the faith that we possess. But for the heart that's determined to push God away and push God away, God withholds it mercy. And that has the effect of hardening a heart. And so this is, what, this is what's being described here when he says, but I will harden heart, Moses, or, uh, Pharaoh's heart, which is to say, I will leave Pharaoh exactly where he is. I will allow him to revel in and to be destroyed by his own folly so that he will not let the people go. Verse 22, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let 
him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now, this is all told to Moses before he is actually going to be engaging Pharaoh. So, again, that kind of begs the question, how much of the overall sequence of command, refusal, plague that Moses gets? But certainly he knows the end game, which is that God considers the children of Israel to be his firstborn son. That's his, his first bride, if you will. And, and he is demanding that that son be freed. And if he is not, then God will, in retribution, take the lives of the firstborn sons of Egypt. So he goes on there in verse, verse uh, 23. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now we come in verse 24 to one of the more troubling and puzzling passages in this whole narrative. Because there we read, and it came to pass on the way, that is presumably on the way into Egypt to go to meet with Pharaoh, at the encampment that the Lord met him, that would be Moses, and sought to kill him. Slam on the brakes. Say, what? We just went through this whole grand plan being laid out, the back and forth with Moses and the Lord, the Lord giving him assurances, the Lord giving him signs to do, the Lord giving him instructions how to approach Pharaoh, the Lord telling him in advance, Pharaoh's heart's going to be hardened. He's not going to let the people go. It's probably going to cost the firstborn sons. Now I'm on my way to kill you. What in the world is going on there? And this is a very cryptic passage. It does not give there a full-on um, explicit description of what's going on, but it does give us clues to help us piece together exactly what's going on. So we pick it up in verse 24. It came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him, Moses, and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah, that would be Moses' wife, took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he, that is God, let him, Moses, go. Then she said, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Here's what's going on. Uh, and to explain it in the best possible way, if you would flip back to Genesis chapter 17. We see here that God is on his way to kill Moses. And then the very next thing we learn is that Zipporah is taking a flint knife to circumcise their son, Gershom. And then she flings the foreskin at the feet of Moses and, and, and calls him a bloody, a bloody husband. Well, here's, here's what's going on. If you, if you go to, to Genesis chapter 17 and you pick it up in verse 9 of that chapter, this is something that God said to Abraham, the first patriarch, the beginning of the Jewish people, if you were, will. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. So here we are. We are back to the covenant God is making with Abraham. And, and God is about to give Abraham the sign of the covenant. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. Notice he's not just leaving this with 
Abraham's generation. He's not just saying you and your sons. He's saying you and every male child in your generations. That means succeeding generations. He who is born in your house or brought, bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is brought, bought with your money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So taking that background, which is the command of God on the descendants of Abraham, of which Moses and his children and all of the children of Israel in the bondage of Egypt. This is a, this is a covenant with them and it is signified in their flesh by the right of circumcision. So knowing that, we go back to the text in, in Exodus chapter, chapter 4, and we have to conclude that the son of Moses and Zipporah was not circumcised. You'd say, but Lord, isn't that kind of a harsh punishment? I mean, if you were going to take Moses out, it might have been when he was doing all that weasel word uh, excuses back at the burning bush when he was trying to get out of this assignment and he was coming up with all kinds of reasons why he shouldn't be the one to go. But this, I mean, it's his son and, you know, no. Now, here's the thing. Moses, as I just mentioned a few minutes ago, Moses didn't all the th know all the things that, were, that was ahead of him, that he would be the receiver of the law that he would be uh, the one who would bring the law to the people, that he would be uh, charged along with his brother and others to, to enforce that law among his people, that he would, he would begin the process of, of distinguishing Israel from all other peoples in the world. This was God's plan for them. They would be unlike any other people. God did not want them intermarrying with other people. God did not want them uh, accepting or, or pandering to the gods of other people. God wanted them to keep their relations uh, pure because he wanted them to stand out among the peoples of the world as his ensign, his people, the, the, the people who literally scream out that God exists and he is a powerful and mighty God. So here you have the leader of all of that, and in his very home, there's compromise. Now, we can only conjecture as to why Moses has gone with not circumcising his son. Maybe he felt that, hey, I left, I left my people in Egypt 40 years ago. Um, I tried to establish myself as a leader amongst them at that time, and they rejected me. Perhaps he felt, well, I've already been cut off from my people. I'm now more Midianite than I am in a Jewish person, and therefore, what's the point? We don't know. We don't get any of that backstory. But from God's thinking, God had planned all along, Moses could be my guy. I'm going to send him. He's going to lead the people out of bondage. He's going to lead the people through the wilderness. He's going to take them to the border of the, of the promised land. And he must, he must be an example that is above reproach. And he's not. And so the Lord, and, and this, this, this is really a very important lesson for us, particularly for any who might lead the people of God. That if you are going to lead the people of God and yet within your very family, you've got compromise that runs counter to the very 
statutes of God that you preach on every, every week, this, this is an untenable position for a leader of the people of God to take. And this is where Moses found himself. Now, we could tell by the reaction of Zipporah. And by the way, I would say it's a fairly valid inference to believe that God, on his way to kill Moses, Moses was probably sick in bed. Because we read that when, when first of all, Zipporah is the one doing the circumcision. And then she throws the foreskin at his feet. You kind of get this picture of Moses sick in bed, sick unto death. And she does this thing because perhaps some way the Lord communicated to him or perhaps he knew he was convicted that he had not followed through on this one sign of the covenant. Has Zipporah do this? She's disgusted by it because she's a Midianite. She's not of God's people. And so to her, this is a horrible thing to do to her son. And this is why she's calling him a bloody husband because he's following a tradition and and a way of approaching God that involves blood, human blood, her son's blood. And so she's, she's uh, aghast. He's on his back suffering from whatever malady the Lord puts on him. And then, of course, they follow through. And um, verse 26 tells us that God let him go. And she said, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron... now. And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. Now, we could assume that Aaron, he was still in Egypt. Aaron, Aaron didn't leave when Moses left, or at least we don't get any indication that he did. So now God is speaking into Aaron's ear, hey, you need to go find your brother in the wilderness of Sinai. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, uh, of the Lord who sent him and all of the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And, and Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So according to the plan between God and, and Moses, Aaron and Moses hook up together. Moses briefs Aaron. Then Moses and Aaron together go and gather the leaders of the people. So they're in Egypt at this point. They explain what the word of God was that was command or that was given to Moses, and then they literally show them the signs that God gave Moses to use as validation of his words. And having done that, we read there, uh, verse 31, so the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction. Then they bowed their heads and worshiped. Wow, first time Moses came, in his first advent, if you will, 40 years prior, as the savior of the people, they rejected him. Kind of a foreshadowing of Christ. Now in this second advent, he comes to his people and they receive him. So we enter into chapter 5, and this begins now the encounter, uh, the encounter of, of Moses and Aaron with Pharaoh. So picking up in verse 1, afterward Moses and Aaron went into and went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold, hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, stopping right here, this would have to be a weird moment for Moses. I mean, you, you could imagine that, you know, he, he knows that palace. He used to live there. 
he may have even been in, in the line of succession, being Pharaoh's daughter's son, the grandson of Pharaoh of the time. And, and so now he's coming back and he's, he's got the look and the smell probably of a sheep herder. And he's now an older man. Um, he lives to be 120, so 80, hey, he's, he's hit, just hitting his stride. <laughs> um, but he's, he's there and he comes before Pharaoh and we can only imagine how he even gets audience with the Pharaoh. Perhaps he does because the elders of the Jewish people who are, let's face it, the labor force of Egypt at this time, so he would have some weight. Pharaoh would, would give him an audience. And he goes before Pharaoh to make a demand. Now, it would be really hard for us to appreciate just how extraordinary that would be as a moment before Pharaoh. And here we have to have an appreciation for how Pharaoh was seen by the Egyptian people. According to uh, all of the history that we get from the time, each Pharaoh was said to be a child of the sun, S-U-N. He was considered a friend of and a contemporary of and even a peer of the greatest gods of Egypt. He would sit with them in their temples and he would receive worship right alongside the deities of the Egyptians. There was no idea that Pharaoh was a public servant like a president or a prime minister. No, he, his entire life he was an object of worship and the public served him. His power and his authority would be supreme. There would be no court that could overrule him. There would be no legislature that would direct him with, with the laws of the land. He was the law of the land. He was the object of worship. An, an inscription by one pharaoh on an ancient Egyptian temple said this. Speaking about himself, the pharaoh wrote, I am that which was and is and shall be, and no man has lifted my veil. Wow. So the Pharaoh to the people of Egypt and certainly to himself was, was more than a mere man. He was considered a god and all of the Egyptians would agree. And this, this is testified by the fact that you go into the Egyptian desert and you see the kind of monuments that were built to these men. Now, <laughs> Pharaoh actually does something that we kind of wish Moses did. He asks the right question. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Now, let's not get carried away with Pharaoh's success here. Pharaoh asks the real question, who is the Lord? Uh, remember when God was commanding Moses back at the burning bush? And, and, and Moses, in considering what God is asking him, comes out with the question, rhetorical or otherwise, it is the question he asks, who am I? Who am I that I should go? And we agreed when we went through that passage that that was the wrong question. The right question is who is God? Since it's God who's doing the commanding and therefore the enabling, the question should be who's God? And can God make this come to, come to pass through the vessel he's chosen, which happens to be Moses? Pharaoh, on the other hand, being directed by this so-called God, at least in his way of thinking, which happens to be the real God, asks the right question, who is God? Unfortunately, he lives in the wrong answer, which is that 
his answer is basically that whoever you think this God is, he's not greater or mightier than me. And therefore, he concludes, I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Now you might ask yourself and say, um, out in the desert to worship the Lord, that, that wasn't the mission. The mission was gather the people, go back to the promised land. So what gives here? Is Moses uh, confused or is he chickening out? Uh, I think the best, uh, the best way to view this is that the Lord is instructing Moses to give Pharaoh an opportunity to agree to a, a smaller or lesser request as a way to soften his heart for the ultimate request. Again, there's nothing in the text that clearly says that, but, but that would be a, a decent reckoning of the progression that Moses is trying to put before Pharaoh. But verse 4 tells us, Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. Now we have to appreciate at this point that the, the, um, the Jewish people that are in captivity with Moses or with, with Pharaoh are the, a significant portion of the labor of the Egyptian economy. If, if you were to take all of those people out of what they were doing at that very moment, uh, you would cripple the economy of one of the strongest powers in the world of the time. And so here is Moses in the palace, a palace that he once lived in, speaking to one of the most powerful men in the world, who, by the way, is viewed by his subjects as God. And Moses is going toe-to-toe -to -toe with him and making a demand on this man who is not willing to do what he says. Again, this must be a very strange day for Moses because here he is now standing in shepherd sandals before a man that could have been him had things tracked differently. And this is where we got to remember, the men and I just finished studying the book of Hebrews last night. And it wasn't that long, that many weeks ago where we, we saw in Hebrews chapter 11, the so-called hall of faith, where the writer of Hebrews lays out all of these different heroes of the faith that are, whose, whose lives are chronicled in the Old Testament um, and, and providing their examples to us as people who lived in the hope of that which was not seen and that which has not yet happened. And yet they lived as though it had already happened and they therefore lived lives of, in some cases, deprivation, uh, in some cases of, of, of severe pain and even death. And this is what we read about Moses in that chapter, Hebrews 11, 24, and 7. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him that is God, who is invisible. And last night, as we were uh, concluding in chapter 13 of Hebrews, uh, the theme of that passage we we're looking at is, is more or less dare to be different. 
because of what we know about the God we serve, dare to be different. Be different than the world when it comes to submission to authority. Be different from the world when it comes to the manner in which we worship our God with courage, without uh, being affected by what others might think, and, and be, be willing to worship our God in word and deed. And this is where Moses got, because he, he held on to this, this God that he did not yet see with his eye. He held on to the words of that God, the promises of that God. And he did that. He esteemed the reproach of following God over the riches of Egypt. And so now he's facing the guy who um, is really could have been him. And, and this man is resisting God. And Moses is standing there in front of him. And he's continuing on the mission God has given him. Verse 5, Pharaoh said, look. The people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from labor. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, you shall no longer give people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. Now, this would be a significant uh, burden imposed on the people. Straw, archaeologists have proved this, that straw was used in the brick making of that day because straw added an acidic content to the mix that ultimately hardened into bricks. And that, that acidic uh, quality of the straw actually made the bricks stronger. And so that was a, a, an essential component to the bricks that these people were making. And it, we can easily infer from the text that previously they would be supplied with all the straw needed for the brick-making quota that they had on any given day. That was not something they had to go and get. It was provided to them probably with the other raw materials, and their job was simply to fashion the bricks, to fire them, and all of that. But now, Pharaoh says, wow, they have time to ask for time off, three days off to go into the wilderness to worship some supposed god rather than me. And so he said, well, if you've got all that time on your hands, go gather your own straw... Verse 8, and you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry out, saying, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Now, this, this would be <laughs> very troubling to the, to the children of Israel because I'm sure that the quota that they had for making bricks up till this time was pretty much them working flat out. And now... They've got another very costly, time-consuming step added to the process with no reduction in the, in the quota that they have. And I'm sure, well, I'm, I'm, I'm positive because we'll see it in the text. The children of Israel are probably smacking their foreheads. They're saying, wait a minute. God gave us a command. God gave us a leader. God told us that he is going to lead us back through this man, Moses, back to the promised land. We are doing what God said. Why isn't everything wonderful? Why isn't everything going smoothly? Why aren't we now favored? Because we are following the instructions given to us by God. And frankly, there are a lot of folks in our world today, we may have been guilty of this ourselves at, at times, where we believe we are walking in the will of God and everything in our life is hard. It's difficult. 
We, are not, we don't feel like we're being shown favor. Quite to the contrary, we believe we are being prejudiced by the very fact that we are trying to follow the will of God. Well, guess what? Uh, the Lord told us that that would be the case. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul wrote, Yes, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's not like, well, things could get rough there for a while or anything. No, it's going to happen. We should never equate smooth sailing with being in the will of God. Because the enemy is not God. He is not as powerful as God. But he has enough power to allow those who would stay in his grasp, follow his way, to have smooth sailing, to even prosper. And so... These people are getting the opposite. Verse 9, let more work be laid on the men that they may labor in it and let them not regard false words. And let the taskmasters of the people and their officers and the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people saying, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourselves straw where you can find it. Yet none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw and the taskmasters forced them to hurry saying fulfill your work your daily quota as when there was straw also the officers of the children of Israel whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them were beaten and were asked why have you not fulfilled your task in making bricks both yesterday and today then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh saying why are you dealing thus with your servants there is no straw given to your servants, and they say to us, make brick. And indeed, your servants are beaten, but the fault is your own people. But he, Pharaoh, said, you are idle, idle. Therefore, you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore, go now and work, for no straw shall be given to you, yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from their quota. Then, as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron, who stood there to meet them, and they said to them, Let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hands to kill us. Now, notice what the children of Israel did. They're being oppressed. They're being oppressed by Pharaoh. Maybe up to this point, they thought they had a pretty good deal with Pharaoh. Maybe they lived rather comfortably under the bondage they were in because they had plenty to eat, they had places to live, they had jobs, etc. Now all of a sudden, Pharaoh has turned on them. Now they are being turned upon because they are being obedient to God. So this begs the question. When they encountered difficulty as they walked in the center of God's will, why didn't they go and appeal to God? No, instead... They went to the very one who was doing the oppressing. They went to the very one who was opposing God. And again, there's a lesson in that for us. Because, you know, when we, let's say before we committed our lives to Christ, and you're going Satan's way, Satan really doesn't care what you believe as long as it's not God. Satan doesn't care if you worship yourself, that you worship a crystal. You can get one next door for cheap. Uh, or, or any other deity that you want to raise up in your life, including pride, arrogance, money, 
power. As soon as you depart from that and move towards God, the very one that you were cozied up with becomes an oppressor. This happens all the time where someone who is living a carnal life and all of a sudden gets a flash of revelation from their burning bush and they start to commit their life to Christ and all of a sudden stuff's happening. Some good, but a lot of it bad, a lot of it hard. The kind of bad that makes you want to quit, the kind of bad that makes you reconsider what you did, the kind of bad that makes you go back and revisit the so-called instructions. Hey, Moses, Aaron, what gives? We're doing exactly what you said God said, and now Pharaoh wants to kill us. And they appealed to Pharaoh, but they didn't appeal to God. And this is a place we can find ourselves. If we, if we, if we have a, a preconceived notion that following God means easy life, rose garden type existence, that's the first problem. And when things are difficult, we don't appeal to Caesar. We don't appeal to Satan. We appeal to God. And at the very least, what we appeal to God for is the grace to make our way through whatever it is that we're going to encounter. And we pray for fidelity to what God has commanded us to do. That's the mistake they made here. Moses now gets real with God. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it that you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Now here, Moses is in a panic. He has actually forgotten what God has told him. God clearly told him that Pharaoh is not going to let the people go. And that it's going to take a series of signs and wonders that God is going to produce through Moses and Aaron that ultimately culminates in the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son. So God is right on schedule and working exactly according to the plan. Surprise, surprise, that's what he always does. And it's Moses who has forgotten the plan. It's Moses who's gotten weak in the knees. It's Moses who is now doubting the plan and himself as the vessel which, of course, is error. But as I said at the outset of this Bible study, Moses didn't just flick a switch and become this superman of faithfulness to God. He needed the same kind of experiences, the same kind of failures that extends our margin of faith that we need as well. And this is one of those times where Moses is now getting a double portion of what it means to stand in the gap in faith even when everything around you looks terrible. I think we shall stop there with terrible because it gets better, okay? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this, this passage. It shows us so clearly how people who start out with a modicum of faith through just showing up, Lord, and continuing to follow you in spite of doubt, in spite of disagreement, in spite of despair and discouragement, just go another day. And Lord, over time, you continue to sanctify them, to purify them, to reassure them, to show them your glory. 
And Lord, we will see in the succeeding chapters how Moses blossoms into hard steel. A man of extraordinary faith. And yet a man of extraordinary humility. Who became a perfectly empty vessel for you to do great and mighty things. Lord, oh, that we would aspire to follow that same track. To allow you to empty us of ourselves. That we might be filled with the faith of believing as true the things that are unseen, the things that are yet to happen, because your word says it, and therefore it's true. God, give us that measure of faith. Lord, give us the courage to walk in the things that we know because you've said them, even when they're unseen, and even when we encounter all kinds of trouble and opposition. Bless my brothers and sisters who are here tonight to hear this message from you, Lord. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.